Hello and welcome. My name is Ian Horvath, and thank you for listening to the first episode of the Natural Bee Podcast, a podcast about pollinators and beekeeping. Our first episode is a conversation with Jill and Brennan from Sprigley's Beescaping in North Carolina. I had a wonderful time talking to them about everything from carpenter bees to educational installation projects and our shared love of native pollinators. Without further ado, here is Jill and Brennan. I'm Jill Jacobs, and this is Brandon Basham, my husband. Hello. Uh, and we are the owners and operators of uh, Sprigney's Beescaping, which is a nature education and habitat restoration business in Western North Carolina. Awesome. Where where exactly are you guys located in North Carolina? We live in Waynesville, which is maybe about 30 minutes west of Asheville, kind of more tucked into the mountains. Oh, okay. What What's the climate like over there? It's, it's pretty mild. Um, we get, you know, I'd say it gets up between like the 80s and 90s in the summer max, and we don't really get much below the 30s or 20s. So we, we came down here from Pennsylvania where it could get into the hundreds in the summer and into like the negative digits during the summer. So for us, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. How long have you guys been down in that area? About five years, a little, a little bit more than five years now. Yeah, and we were really lucky. We live about uh, five minutes from an entrance to the Blue Ridge Parkway. So that's kind of our backyard is the way that we like to think of it. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> probably really pretty over there. Absolutely. It is very pretty. And where, where are you? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, that's another absolutely beautiful place. Yeah. It's, it's really gorgeous up here. What what got you guys interested in kind of starting Sprigley's? And did you do other bee ventures before you landed on this? Absolutely. Um, so I started kind of working with native plants a little over 10 years ago. And Kind of the more I worked with native plants, the more I fell in love with the carnival of creatures that not only depended on those native plants for their life, but also helped those plants kind of work at their maximum efficiency. And so I kind of dived into learning about native bees and other beneficial insects. And the more I learned about those animals and talked to other people around me, the more I realized that almost everyone I talked to was just as critically uninformed as I had been. And so I kind of made it my life's goal to kind of spread the knowledge of these bees and um, by consequence kind of uh, uh, kind of share the appreciation that kind of comes along with learning how fascinating they are. And um, a part of Brandon's past, uh, both of our pasts really, that he didn't mention too much is that we did keep honeybees uh, for a few years um, and he worked at some large-scale uh, honeybee operations and kind of the more we learned about honeybees, the more we learned about native bees, like Brandon was saying, we realized this ridiculous gap in education, not only for ourselves, but just for everybody. And especially in America where honeybees are not a native creature, but serve such an important part of our agricultural system, they get a lot more press than our native bees do, but our native bees are struggling just as much and in sometimes very different ways, since it's mostly related to habitat loss. Um, opposed to you know maybe a mite or a disease that is is, is harming them so exactly. so yeah it just kind of bred out of our own passions and interests and that was about 10 years ago and i'm my whole background is in kind of marketing and business development 
and I love nature. And so, you know, Brianna kind of came in with the bees. I came in with the business and we turned it into Sprigley's. Right. Yeah, we, we kind of started off um, mostly kind of on the educational lecture side, um, kind of just talking about bees. And then um, kind of over the years, we've also transitioned into uh, locating areas that are um, kind of sparse as far as native plants um, and habitat for native wildlife and um, working to transition those spaces into more livable areas for, for native beneficial wildlife. And when you got into native plants, was that just through school um, or did you kind of just grow up being taught about native plants? Because I feel like a lot of people don't, maybe don't consciously think about a native plant versus mm -hmm. an ornamental plant. So I think that's really interesting that you started there. Absolutely. No, uh, luckily I kind of fell into it. Um, I uh, went to high school in a, a town called Kennett Square, which uh, is home to one of the premier historic gardens in the country called Longwood Gardens. And so while I was in high school, I actually interned there. Um, and then after college, um, I was looking for um, something that wasn't, you know, desk oriented. I had been working in the nonprofit sector, um, mostly um, helping people find work who are suffering from various disabilities. Um, and I realized that that, you know, wasn't for me. And I was looking for something that um, got me kind of out of the office. And I went back to Longwood Gardens and ended up in the native plant section. And so um, I worked there for several years, working very closely um, with native plants uh, in the area of the gardens called Pierce's Woods, which is maintained um, by a, a woman named Pandora, who is e e extremely knowledgeable. Um, and I owe a lot of my uh, both plant knowledge and some of my uh, wildlife knowledge to Pandora Young. She's She was great at kind of sharing her knowledge, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth, um, in those native gardens in Longwood. Yeah, and then we're big hikers and really love being outside, and so just kind of the more and more Brandon learned, the more and more we found ourselves not hiking as much as stopping every five seconds to take pictures of everything we saw and just kind of started down our road of not only having this business, but truly trying to become the best citizen scientists that we can. Mm, that's interesting. You said that you've kept honeybees in the past. Do you currently keep any? I don't. Um, with the bleeding heart that I possess, um, the more I worked with honeybees, and especially the more I learned about how they can outcompete a lot of our native bee species just through sheer numbers alone, it was harder and harder for me uh, to just keep honeybees myself. However, I do um, actively mentor a lot of honeybee keepers in the area um, and you know, help them maintain their hives and stay on top of any pester diseases that might be um, you know, pestering their hives. And I do kind of get my honeybee keeping out vicariously that way. And he also educates a lot on honeybees. So one of our um, kind of most presented programs is a two-hour program for the first about 45 minutes is all about honeybees, which we like to call the gateway bug. Um, and then the rest of that presentation focuses in on native bees and talking about the fascinating history of honeybees, our connection to them as humans, what they bring to the table, and also how native bees might be able to fill a lot of those gaps that honeybees might not be able to fill. And we have 4,000 species of them here in North America alone. So we just, like Brandon said, kind of became the bleeding hearts for the native bees and all native pollinators and wildlife. Yeah. What uh, what type of native bees do you have around your area that you guys, I guess, are your favorites or ones you really see a lot? Uh, so Brandon knows what I'm going to say. My all-time favorite bee is a leaf cutter bee called a Mega Chili Musita. 
And actually, it was a friend of ours who lives up the mountain from us who first sent me a message saying, I thought you said that bumblebees and carpenter bees can't nest inside bee hotels, kind of like our little bee cabins that we sell. And I said, well, they, they can't. And she sends me a picture. And we started seeing them on our own property, did a lot of research, and we discovered there is a leafcutter bee who mimics a bumblebee and looks exactly like a bumblebee. So you get to watch a very chubby, fuzzy little bee kind of squeeze itself down into these little holes to make its nest. And it's fascinating, kind of that mimicry. And it does it because bumblebees are larger bees that most predators are a little bit more afraid of. So they use it for their own benefit. But I just find them to be fascinating and also quite adorable. Yeah, and probably my favorite species would have to be bumblebees, which Jill, of course, mentioned. They're some of our only truly social bees here in North America. They're very, of course, because they're large size, they're very easy to see and observe in a garden, very gentle and very beneficial pollinators, both through their buzz pollination capabilities and just their sheer size alone, really lets them fly in inclement weather. That, like Jill said, might keep honeybees locked away in their hives. And so um, those are probably my favorites as well. And I'd say just connecting to the bumblebee, our last one probably are the most misunderstood bees and the ones that usually get a really bad rap. And those are large carpenter bees, which are some of the most fascinating bees. I mean, just the sheer fact that they can live for up to four years. And most bees don't live more than a few weeks or a few months. So it's pretty incredible just in that sense. But but yeah, we could probably keep going on about favorite bees for quite some time. <laughs> so. Well, uh, actually, I, I do want to explore the carpenter bee because I didn't realize that they could live year to year. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Yep. So uh, unfortunately, carpenter bees, along with a lot of our native bees, are still critically understudied. So we do like to think of ourselves as living in the future, but really we're still in the Middle Ages as far as bee science goes. But um, what some of the things we do know about carpenter bees is, like Jill said, they do seem to be extremely long-lived to the vast majority of bees native to North America and the world, really. Um, and they do seem to live multi-generationally in their what's called galleries, or the holes that they bore into wood. And so basically in the first uh, half a year to up to a year, those carpenter bees really don't leave the nest. Those young carpenter bees have kind of nest cleaning duties. They also protect the nest from being invaded by predators or pests. And then after that first you know, juvenile period of up to a year, then they will leave the nest and do foraging, um, you know, water gathering, um, other kind of um, nest duties that involve leaving the, the nest. And so, yes, it does seem that carpenter bees uh, share the nest with related family, and it's a multi-year, multi-generational process where, depending on the age of the bee, they do completely different things kind of in and around the hive. And as most people have probably experienced, uh, you'll most likely come into contact with a male carpenter bee, and those are the ones that they'll have a big yellow dot on their forehead. Carpenter bees always have a shiny abdomen or a shiny butt in comparison to bumblebees, which are usually much fuzzier and covered in hairs. And those male uh, bees will create a perimeter around their nest and they'll get to know not only the bees that live in that area, but they'll get to know the humans that live in that area. And it's been studied both with bumblebees and with carpenter bees that they can recognize faces of humans and actually recognize you in your garden. So sometimes you really can get a friend. They can't sting you, so they're all bark, no bite. They might try to headbutt you, but we really do encourage people to take some time paying attention to carpenter bees 
opposed to just wanting to get rid of them because they're fascinating and some of the really most powerful pollinators that we have. Right, and in general, of course, the biggest kind of lashback we get when we're talking about carpenter bees is the damage or the potential damage that they can cause to a structure. And interestingly enough, they actually don't cause as much structural damage as you might think. As they kind of burrow their galleries, they burrow about an inch, maybe to two inches against the wood grain, and then they turn and the rest of their galleries are constructed along the wood grain. And what that does is it actually, it mimics a natural split in wood. And so in nature, a carpenter bee's probably favorite nesting site is a dead branch on a living tree. And so they've developed that method of boring along the wood grain to really minimize the structural damage that they do to that wood. And so in nature, of course, that's to ensure that that branch stays intact, attached to that that tree as long as possible, but it also benefits our houses as well because, interestingly enough, even though they do dig into our, our wood and our houses and our decks, the structural integrity of those are not really compromised as much as you would think, just because of the fact that, again, they they purposely kind of build their nests in a way to minimize that damage. Unfortunately, the damage usually comes from woodpeckers or other creatures that are trying to get into uh, the carpenter bee nest. Uh, but the carpenter bees themselves, there's some pretty fascinating research out there about, you know, barns that are 100 years old and they take down the barn and they notice it's full of carpenter bee holes, but it was still actually structurally sound and standing. So it's pretty fascinating when you kind of learn about how these creatures really create their nests. Right. Yeah. So usually it's um, kind of as soon as you see or hear woodpeckers or other chiselers trying to break into your uh, your carpenter bee nests that's when you know real damage is being done. So there are you know, reflective stickers um, or markers that you can put up to try and keep those predators away. Uh, that, that's so fascinating. I didn't realize carpenter bees, I, I thought they were all just like bumblebees and they just lived year to year. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it does seem, you know, depending on the climate of the area they're in, they are, you know, pretty malleable as far as their life cycle. But yeah, it does seem they're very unique in their life cycle, especially among North American bees. And they're more um, gregarious, meaning kind of like living and working together, opposed to truly nesting with just one queen who's kind of leading the show the way they are with a bumblebee nest. So they are very, very different, very unique among kind of all bee species. Oh, so there's not a central queen or multiple queens living together. It's almost that each female is fertile enough to lay her own eggs. Uh, yes, and again, that depends on where they're living, how mm -hmm. easy the season's been. It seems like if you know it's a tough season and they have to work together, they're more willing to um, kind of share labor and support a single or maybe a few queens. And then sometimes when maybe the year is... Uh, kind of easy going and it's very easy for individuals to find their own food then yes uh, you're correct they might branch out a little bit more and each female might do her own uh, kind of egg laying and provisioning wow that's that's totally unique i did not realize that at all right and there's there's a lot of our so, um, so-called solitary bees here in north america that do exhibit that same you know, semi-social nature, depending on the season, where they live. And so a lot of our bees that are termed, you know, social or semi-social, they do have the ability um, to, to kind of work together when they need to. And so they're very adaptable in that way. And another thing I'm just, I always find to be really fascinating is even that a lot of our solitary species, whether we're talking about a mason bee or a leafcutter bee nesting in wood, 
or a sweat bee or a digger bee nesting in the ground, often they're very similar to humans. You know, there's kind of a single road and then individual nesting sites off of that. So they can kind of look out for one another, although they're not working together, there still is this kind of communal nature still to bees, even when each of them are their own kind of solitary female queen, they're still living and working to make sure that if a big predator is coming around, maybe they're doing something to let each other know that this is happening. Right, and we like to refer to that as almost like a, a, a bee condominium or a bee apartment complex. And so a great example of this is a lot of ground nesting sweat bees, for example. We'll have a single entrance um, into the apartment, if you may, and then each kind of individual bee has their own individual tunnel that branches off, almost like their own apartment. Really? Mm-hmm. That is incredible. I thought that they nested together at, or close to each other. I didn't realize that they would go that far. But that's yep, really so, interesting. And, you know, it does differ by species. Um, yeah. One benefit to having, you know, over 4,000 species native to North America is we probably have a species that exhibits every type of this, you know, social or semi-social living. Um, but, yeah, again, that they are relatively malleable, and it's, mm-hmm. it is amazing to see what they can and will do, you know, depending on, on their needs. But kind of more often than not, more often we are dealing with solitary or semi-social species opposed to a true social species, like a honeybee or like a bumblebee. So those kind of are, there's way less true social species within the bee world. And one of the main um, kind of differences between those two hives as well is that, you know, in America, the biggest hives we really have are nests of honeybees that might be up to 400 bees at the max, probably, usually closer to 100. Whereas, you know, with honeybee hives, we can have upwards of 50,000 bees at the height of summer or more. So, you know, for a lot of our native bees, you can see how they can be kind of easily outcompeted and why planting more native plants and restoring more habitat benefits not only honeybees, but of course really benefits those native pollinators. Exactly. I mean, that seems to be, um, especially with recent research, kind of the biggest downside to a lot of honeybees or hives in an area is just through the fact that, like Jill said, uh, the vast majority of our bee species are solitary. They live alone. They don't, you know, share labor in huge hives. Just by introducing one or a few honeybee hives with those you know, tens of thousands of, of members in them, uh, just through sheer numbers alone, they can easily, you know, outcompete some of those solitary bees. Yeah. Do you guys keep mason bees yourselves? We do, yeah. We um, we create a lot of cabins that we sell, um, and we have them kind of in all locations around our property. We also do a lot of kind of testing with them. There's a lot of research out there that says, you know, they should be facing the morning sun, they should not be in harsh winds, all of these different things. And so we've tried to test out a lot of that research around our own property. And I think the winds is definitely one of them, but one of our most successful cabins was actually facing our house. It wasn't even facing uh, the yard. So it shows just how kind of tenacious these creatures are and that they're really looking for these homes. And we live around a lot of wooded area. And you know, by having those cabins, not only can we help some of those bees that might not have found a, a home, but we also bring them closer to our garden, which it's been shown that they can increase the yield of your production in your own garden by about 50% just by having one of those cabins that kind of keeps them closer and also leaving bare areas of soil for all of those bees that live in the ground. Yeah, exactly. About about 70% of the bees native to North America live in the ground, like Jill was saying. And so we um, try to kind of have uh, multiple um I guess, ways of keeping and fostering populations of bees on our property. So we leave plenty of 
you know, bare soil and or sparse mulch so that those ground nesting bees can have access to the soil. But for the wood nesting bees, which are mostly in our area, mason bees and leafcutter bees, like Jill said, we do have a bunch of those man-made houses. And um, one critical difference between those mason bees and leafcutter bees and say something like a carpenter bee is even though those mason and leafcutter bees do live in tunnels and wood, they actually don't excavate the wood themselves. They actually rely on boring insects to excavate their tunnels for them. And usually this is done by beetle larvae and other young insects that eat into the wood. And then after those larvae emerge, the um, you know, mason and leafcutter bees actually fly through an area. They've uh, kind of adapted to be able to very easily see those very specific diameters of holes in wood, and they move right in. And so our native bee uh, cabins kind of mimic that kind of bored dead wood, just kind of in a, a slightly nicer looking package. And so just like they would in the natural environment, they can fly through our property and they just quickly see those those holes and they move right in. Really? I didn't realize they had such a dependency on the beetle larva as well. Yeah, yeah, which is also kind of one of the reasons, especially in a lot of urban environments, we don't see a lot of these wood nesting bees is because standing dead trees are usually the first thing or even fallen dead trees, logs, detritus, the first things to be removed from those landscapes. And of course, that's what the beetles need to create their homes and in turn to create the nests for these kind of those 30% of bees. And there's also um, some species of really beneficial solitary wasps that are incredible predators that also they're called mason wasps very similarly and they also build with mud uh, but again they also use use these home sites so you're not only fostering home sites for pollinators but you're also fostering home sites for predators that also happen to be pollinators so it's a great kind of boon to the ecosystem and really the only maintenance is every few years uh, we always tell people to change out the inserts there's a lot of bee cabins that are made where you open them up and take out the bees and use bleach to scrub out the cabins. And RMO is to try to stick as close to nature as possible and restore habitat opposed to manage that habitat. So we really kind of created a design where each piece is inter interchangeable. So as those nesting sites are used, you can provide clean homes to bees, which of course can help keep down on pests and diseases in the same way you would help your honeybees. Right, yeah, we engineered our cabins to just be very easily changeable as far as those inserts and so you can just replace them every few years rather than try to actually clean out uh, that place which like Jill said is just unnatural and probably bad to the bees in some way. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your mason bee book? I saw that on your website and I thought that was just amazing and I feel like a lot of children's books nowadays, um, well maybe not nowadays, but I just feel like a lot of children's books focus on honeybees as the gateway bee, right? And I thought that it was really interesting that you guys chose to do a mason bee approach to this because it is like the, the lesser known of um, pollinators for the general public that you just think of a honeybee. So I think that was really, really cool if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, I'm sure we both have our own answers to this, but you know, one of the things for me that's been so fascinating is seeing these bees out in the field, actually looking at a flower and thinking to myself, oh, that's a honeybee, and getting closer and realizing that it's not a honeybee at all. It's a totally different species that just sort of looks similar to it. And so we really wanted to make sure that kids understood that when they go out and they're, they're in the world, that there aren't only honeybees and there aren't maybe only bumblebees, these creatures that they've seen, 
there's a whole diversity. There's a zoo in your own backyard. It's kind of something we've, we've talked about many times and trying to make sure that children really understand that. And mason bees are found all across the United States. They're really found all across the world. They're extraordinarily common bees. They're really easy to see. They're extraordinarily fun to watch. They're very active in the environment. You can watch them go and gather mud and bring it back. But so we really try to choose a creature that probably most kids had actually seen, but had no idea that they were seeing it. And uh, in some of our uh, workshops where we read the book and then we'll do some teaching, we have uh, a little game that kids can play. It's a little activity sheet. And it shows a mason bee and it shows a bumble and a honeybee drawn. And on the mason bee, it's covered in hairs all over its body. It doesn't just have the pollen pockets, the corbicula, it's just covered in hairs. Whereas the honeybee, it shows kind of the dense amount of hairs on its uh, thorax and also its big pollen pockets. And they're told to glue pieces of paper that serves as pollen in all the places they can. And always the mason bee wins. It's covered in pollen by the end of it, while the honeybee is only covered in so much. And we can really show through that and then teach about pollination and why then a mason bee as it's moving from flower to flower would be able to let more pollen go from flower to flower opposed to a honeybee whose goal is to bring that back to the hive. So for us, it was really focusing in on a creature they've always seen and being able to use it as an educational tool during workshops as well. That's really interesting, uh, the, the visual aspect of that, because I feel like that's really the way kids learn is to be able to bridge that between the book and, you know, an in-person demonstration of that is, it, honestly, it's a very difficult thing to do uh, for kids. And I, I applaud you for that. So. Thank you. Yeah, I, I spent a long time working at children's museums and in the early childhood education spectrum uh, before I kind of transitioned and went back to grad school. And during that, that was the biggest thing I learned. It's kind of the same things we do with our exhibits. How do we create the experience, the interactive experience that teaches children by doing, not just by talking to them. And that's why as well in the book, we try to include some activities, some more uh, pictures of the animals, ways to, after you've read the story, to really keep that education going and give parents tools to keep that education going, guardians, teachers, whoever it is that's using that book. And you guys also wrote another book too, right? A Guide to the Wonderful World Around Us. What is that one about? Oh yeah, that's um, basically I'm, I'm a nature writer as well as a horticulturalist, so basically I try to write about the fascinating things that I see and also try to kind of change people's perspectives about the natural world around them. And so um, I've written for um, some local papers for several years now, and so that book is kind of a collection of my most popular and favorite articles that I've also expanded on. And so it's um, kind of a wide range of nature topics from mushrooms to the moon. I mean, it's engineered so that the reader can kind of sit down and even if you only have, you know, five to ten minutes to read, you could get through a story and, and learn some fascinating information in an entertaining way. So. Yeah, and it's broken into six different chapters. And of course, one of them is called Strictly Insects, Mostly Pollinators, because we couldn't help ourselves. But it really is a big breadth and scope. And there's also a lot in there about, you know, pesticide usage and rising CO2 levels, kind of looking into some of the feelings of human impact. And that's also something that was really important to us when we were writing our book, is that in the book, um, in the very beginning, there is a construction crew that comes through and takes down our Mason Bee's uh, current home where she's living in her nest in a stump. And so we can show in the beginning of the book that humans do cause some problems, but at the end of the book, it's a human that's 
in their big kind of open lawn has decided to put a bee cabin and she finds her home. And so we can also show them that although we cause problems, we also have the power to fix those problems and help the world around us. Right, yep, yeah. so kind of, um, we were hoping to kind of equip children with um, kind of the ability uh, to kind of look at the world around them and recognize, you know, both that, you know, we can be harmful to the world around us, but also we can be the key to its salvation as well. And so, um, you know, giving kids the ability to kind of start recognizing that even at a young age, I think it was very important to us. That's really cool. I, I, um, I know you've touched a little bit on the the installation you guys have done, um, or multiple installations you've done, which again, totally blown out of the water on the depth of detail. And I, I've tried, let's say, to do things like this and have always fallen short because it's so comprehensive. You have to um, take in so many factors. Do you mind speaking a little bit about the different types of installations, maybe how you got started with it and just how you go about designing something like this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I'd say I really pull a lot from my years. I worked at uh, the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia for three years, uh, doing uh, early childhood education programs, mostly in inner city schools, but I also worked within the museum a lot too. And the thing that I always was so fascinated about was their ability to create exhibits, all children's museums and museums in general, is creating exhibits that are hopefully just as engaging for a three or four year old as they are for a 33 year old or an 83 year old. And how do you create something that's interactive and engaging and educational, but also calls you to want to interact with it? You know, there's things that are interactive, but they don't pull you in and make you feel like you want to understand what's going on. And so for us, we've always tried to view it as, like I said, how do we reach the widest breadth of people at one time and how do we include something for us it's been important that kind of surprise factor how do we show them in the same way there's kind of hidden gems throughout our environment all around us just underneath that log how do we give that experience to individuals without actually you know bothering those creatures that might be living inside those logs and so um, one of our most recent uh, installations we did, which was at the Hands-On Children's Museum in Hendersonville, North Carolina, they have a beautiful mural that was painted there by Matt Wiley of uh, Good of the Hive. Uh, he's a, an incredible artist who's uh, painting, I think, 50,000 honeybees across the United States. And he did this amazing mural with both honeybees and native pollinators. And there's a native garden in front, and we have both a functional house, which is a true working native bee house that has nesters living inside of it just downtown in the middle of hendersonville which is great to see and then there's that educational portion which is a log that we had that we had hollowed out in a certain section and created pretty much a shadow box so when you lifted up one portion of the log you got to see inside what those native nesting mason bees or leafcutter bees would be doing and we would show a hollow tube in the same way that they would have found that uh, tunnel made by a boring insect like a little beetle larva. And then we show their process, which is to go inside that tunnel with a ball of pollen, lay down that ball of pollen, lay an egg on top, and then using its building material, it will create cells. If it's a mason bee, it uses mud, dirt, and rocks, very similar to a human mason. If it's a leaf cutter bee, it uses leaves. Uh, sometimes leafcutter bees take it to the next step. And they also line the inside of the holes to create a waterproofing protection. And so we give them that experience of actually getting to see inside this bee's home, which is 
something that isn't very easily done. And we also get to show the life cycle. So we show the, the one hole shows eggs, the next hole shows the larva, and then the, the last hole that we have within that exhibit shows when the bees have actually spun themselves into cocoons, and now they're transforming into bees, getting ready to come out the following spring. Yeah, a lot of our exhibits, like Jill said, they have that kind of hands-on, tactile part of them that you know is especially attractive to younger kids. But at the same time, we also like to have you know educational signage or something that might reach out to you know the older crowd that might be there with their kids and try to give you know parents especially plenty of information that they can then you know drip feed to their kids um, as needed um, you know at kind of throughout the next week or so. And I'd say there was a couple exhibitions uh, that we did with the Asheville Museum of Science, and that's a really cool space. It's mostly directed towards younger kids. There are a lot of teenagers and college students that come through there as well, just because it's a really fun place to be. And I know one of the things that we always love seeing were those teenagers and those college students just so engrossed in the interactive kind of pieces of the exhibit we had put up. Uh, one of them we did showed how bees can see along the ultraviolet spectrum. And we did this really cool kind of black lake project with hidden markers. And honestly, every time we came into the museum, there were always people there playing with it. And nine times out of 10, it was a teenager or a college student. So it was also cool to see how we were able to reach sometimes the hardest group to reach, those teenagers, those high school students, that we were still able to engage them was, was really enjoyable for us. Yeah, that that is difficult to engage everyone from the child to the teenager to the adult, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And going back to the log that you mentioned, Jill, that's when I saw it on your website, I was like, I was so blown away. I thought that was an incredible idea and a, and a, a great way to present just how these bees are living in nature in a way that any child could easily see and then adapt that to their to their backyard, either the branch or the log laying on the ground in their backyard too. Thank um, you, that's that's so awesome to hear. You know, that, that was always our goal. And I'd say when we started that, we actually were hoping to make that a functional exhibit uh, with a piece of plexiglass where maybe you would actually see live bees. We kept getting so concerned about, you know, what if even though we had it on a kind of uh, release where the log would close back, what if it got left open? What if the bees got exposed to the sun? What if they got exposed to water in the way that they wouldn't? And so really when we came back to that site, we realized that having one functional house and then one true exhibit piece that could be interacted with without bothering any of the insects was definitely the, the best way to go. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And so a lot of these exhibits are temporary or permanent and people can um, hire you out essentially to self-design or reuse ones that you've done in the past? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, for uh, the ones at the Asheville Museum of Science, uh, that's actually where we kind of, it was about four years ago when we started doing exhibits there. And uh, we worked with them and had a space that was, uh, it was called Sprigley's Insect Exploration Station. Uh, and we had that space for a year and we changed it out three different times. And now those exhibits are kind of packaged with, uh, we use um, kind of a sticky vinyl signage that can be easily taken down and put up on different walls. Um, and then there's the kind of interactive exhibit pieces. And so, yeah, we have those that we can kind of package out and have already put together. But then a lot of the ones we wind up doing are kind of site specific installations where they have a very specific goal that they want to uh, get across in that exhibit. And we get to design something specifically for that space. 
Um, and in addition to the exhibits, we also create uh, you know, kind of teaching models. Uh, so recently, uh, a model that we use in all of our presentations, which you can see under our exhibit section within the How Native Bees Prepare for Winter images, uh, if you go to the website, there's a huge larger than life inside version of a Mason Bee House, similar to the tunnels in the little log. This one's like a two foot um, hollowed out piece of sycamore uh, that we had found uh, that was perfect for this, um, that a friend was trying to remove from their property that we were able to use. Uh, and we hollowed that out and we turned that into that larger than life model. And we've used that in every one of our presentations and we've had multiple people now want us to create one of those models for them. Uh, most recently, we did one for the State Botanical Garden of Georgia um, and they're using it as a teaching tool because uh, they have a large pollinator garden. And so we also help with that uh, poster creation, flyer creation, I'm a graphic designer, so anytime we can make informational signage. But yeah, whether it's original or one of our packaged uh, exhibits, we have a whole gamut of things that we can offer. That's cool. And um, maybe I could have you guys talk about your work on the Pollinator Partnership. I, I've followed them from a distance for the past few years, and I uh, thought that was really interesting when you mentioned that you had been on the Bee Friendly Farming Task Force with them. Yeah, so uh, we, this was our first year launching the business. And uh, we were looking for a conference to go to so we could really immerse ourselves with a lot of other individuals who are like-minded. And the Pollinator Partnership Conference was going on in DC. And so we came to that and had a fantastic time. And one of the things that they were really struggling with, especially with that Bee Friendly Farming Program, was just getting the message out there, uh, materials to have, presentations to have, and so it was uh, pretty exciting for us because we were able to come in and actually really help them with that. Uh, we designed some rack cards for them, some PowerPoint presentations, some different language that they were able to use. Um, and at that point in time, although we were not working directly with the farmers, we were working on all of the materials and language that was kind of going out to engage those farmers. Um, and we sat on that task force for about two years. Um, and honestly, we are a two-person team. Uh, we're a small business. We're not backed by a university. And we were just having a really hard time uh, keeping up with the commitment and feeling like we were giving as much to that, uh, that team as the way we were when we first started out. Um, and they were great. They totally understood. Um, but we, we always still try to make sure people know about that program, um, especially farmers who even just something as planting a single strip of wildflowers could do such a big deal on some of those large swaths of land. Right, and of course they're interested in, in both, um, you know, incorporating diverse native plantings into monoculture fields, both to um, help uh, beneficial pollinators and predators both move into those fields and settle down there for the long term, but also they're very focused on uh, helping farmers develop and incorporate uh, really in-depth IPM plans or uh, 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 integrated pest management plans that really involve um, managing a pest at levels um, far beyond just simply spraying and forgetting. And so, you know, establishing manageable populations of those uh, pests and then managing them through either cultural or mechanical methods um, first and foremost uh, and using pesticides is really a, a last resort more than anything else. Yeah, it focuses a lot more on that habitat restoration side. You know, how do we create that habitat that brings in the beetles and the birds and the wasps and all of those creatures that are going to be far better pest control than anything you could ever find uh, in a bottle. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how the the theme keeps coming up on how everything's integrated, right? From the beetle larva helping out the 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 bees and creating those homes, and then yes, having every, yes, <laughs> right. And it's a great example of you know a potential unintended consequences. You know, you you do one thing in an environment, and organisms, both plants and animals, you know, far removed, could be impacted in ways that you you know could have never thought, and so. It's a, it's a great example of kind of those interconnectedness of natures around us. Yeah, not only the the wildlife's connection to the native plants, but native plants' connections to other native plants, and how you know there's really a whole network of a whole fungal microbial network within the roots within the soil that is everybody talking to each other, telling each other about issues that might be coming in the same way. I mean, it's it's fascinating how nature talks to itself. And once, like you said, you kind of realize that every single thing is interconnected, you understand why chopping down that goldenrod plant that popped up on your yard, how big of a deal that is. That's not only, you know, food in terms of forage for pollinators, but then it becomes seed heads that are used by birds in the winter months. There is antimicrobial properties as a part of that, that, that plant that could be beneficial to humans as well. So I think a lot of this is taking a step back and realizing that yes, everything's connected, everything touches one another, and we have the power by just simply leaving things or planting certain things to be a huge part of the ecosystem around us. Absolutely, and another you know big thing that really everyone can play a part in that really strengthens our native ecosystems is getting to know the invasive plants in an area and simply freeing up your natural environments of those native plants. Because just like Jill said, you know, um, it, it's almost impossible for us humans to uh, restore and replace a lot of the habitats that have been lost just simply because a lot of these habitats have taken millions of years to become established to the point that they are. But it's, it's relatively easy for us to help save, you know, some of our surviving environments just by helping get rid of, you know, the, the bittersweet or the miscanthus or whatever invasive plants might be running rampant in a certain area getting to know those red flags and pulling them whenever you see them is, is a great way to help out those struggling ecosystems. And something that we do a lot through kind of our, our, our habitat restoration, pollinator gardens, all the kind of stuff that we do that's really active out in the field is also showing people that a lot of the kind of ornamental plants, uh, you know, in our area, for example, forsythia is a huge ornamental plant, but forsythia has tons of blooms, but they don't really offer anything to wildlife around them. Actually, often wildlife waste energy by going to those plants. And there are plants that look very similar that, for example, a spice bush uh, in this region is a very similar look to a forsythia. And not only does it support countless Lepidoptera species, so butterflies and moths, but it also has blooms that have ample nectar and pollen. So again, you see how just by rethinking about a plant, you can create such a boon in your ecosystem just by replacing one plant to let alone the rest of your space. And kind of the threshold we always tell people is that you want 70% native plants or more. Uh, there's a lot of uh, research out there that says once a landscape drops below 70%, there isn't enough insects in the area to support carnivorous birds. And again, then we see kind of the whole entire uh, life cycle in our whole ecosystem kind of unraveling just by those little cobs, which are generally those insects. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's really incredible information. Gosh, you guys are such a wealth of information. I'm just like trying to take it all in. Um, but a lot of this is captured through some of the online classes you guys do as well, right? Absolutely. Yep. So uh, we recently uh, finished uh, filming about 10 hours of content that basically go, goes over the entire gamut of what we've been talking about. And so the beginning of the courses, you kind of learn about um, our native common pollinators, predators, and other beneficial animals, kind of their life cycles. We kind of get into the nitty gritty about how and why they live their lives and how you can support them. And then kind of the later part of the class then is geared towards how you can engineer a certain space to better foster and bring those animals closer into your properties where they can benefit you uh, just through their sheer pollination and predation services. Yeah, and something uh, we, we hear a lot and it's, you know, it's also flattering, but we never want anything to be too much information at once. So when we were creating the course, we really made a point of breaking each course. Uh, it's called Gardening for the Planet is the whole series. Uh, but like Brandon said, there's about 10 hours of content span across about eight courses. Um, and within each of those, they're all broken into five, 10, 20 minute videos. So you can kind of focus in on a small topic, easily digestible, you're able to rewatch if you want to, but it's done in a way that even if you only have 20 minutes a day to devote to nature education, you can come watch on demand. Uh, we have an option where you can just get access for life or you can get monthly access. But something we realized is that it's hard for a lot of people to fit uh, education into their schedule. That's just for either their own benefit or for a benefit that they might not be able to see in the same way as maybe taking a course that helps with their work or something like that. So we wanted to create something that anybody could feel they could take, get it at any time and truly become kind of experts about their local ecosystems and ways that they can really, really support the world around them. Going back to, I think you, you mentioned the, the pollinator gardens and kind of, what, <laughs> again, another thing I thought was so funny uh, with the word beescaping, which I had never heard before, but it's, it explains so much, <laughs> like one word, you know, it's, land, I assume it's landscaping to foster bee habitat and everything. I think Absolutely. that's really cool. Yeah. And of course, if you foster bee habitat, you foster habitat for most other wildlife at the same time. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the whole goal. It's, it's funny, when we were choosing the name of the business, we went back and forth for a really long time. And then we settled on Sprigley's Beescaping. And uh, everyone always wants to know, like, what's Sprigley's? And that's really just the endearing name we call our cat, uh, who is a true plant lover, not a plant hater. She can be often found snuggling with plants and licking plants and cuddling with them, never destroying them. And so she's, she's our little our little nature cat, but the beescaping portion really felt like it needed to be there to, like you said, tell people exactly what we're trying to do, whether that's through nature education or habitat restoration, we want you to create landscapes that support the wildlife around you. Exactly, and you know we offer both in-person and virtual design serv services for those spaces. And, both of them both kind of follow the same um, kind of method that we, we kind of use to kind of view the space. And so unfortunately, as most people are aware of, the first thing that most developers do in an urbanization project is they slough off all the topsoil and leave you know, homeowners with you know, bare clay or even worse, you know, sandy or rocky soil uh, to bake their gardens. And so when we go to a site, you know, first we take a close look 
at the soil to see if it needs to be amended or anything needs to be added to the soil to make it more livable for plants. Uh, and then we also go to the site and first take a look at the other plants, especially native plants that are on and around their property that might be blooming at different times during the year. And we try to design our gardens uh, to kind of fill any gaps in bloom times that are already present in the plants that are already in the area. And so say if a person lives in an area and they're surrounded by maple trees that bloom early in the spring, we would design a garden that maybe picks up the slack in the summer and fall uh, and maybe has a few less plants blooming at that, you know, abundant springtime. Um, and then at the same time, like I mentioned earlier, we also take a close look at any invasive plants that might be uh, on or around their property that might endanger their plantings for the future. And so uh, those are kind of the three kind of main things that we look for. Um, of course, we do offer in-person services, but also we can do these virtually as well, just through pictures um, and also just talking to the client as well. Mm -hmm. We've done some video chats with people kind of walking us around their property, showing us something, and we're like, yep, that's bittersweet. You're gonna wanna pull that immediately. But so we try to create the same experience for our customers, whether they are in-person or virtual, and especially in this day and age, I think having more virtual opportunities is definitely really helpful. Um, and then from there, we usually try to help people in whatever way they think they really need, whether it's just a simple list of plants or you know, kind of a more dynamic list of plants with planting times and care instructions and all sorts of stuff like that. Or if they want a full CAD landscape de design uh, created, you know, Brandon can create that as well. So we try to offer people a range of services. And we also try to offer our services at a, a really competitive price to a lot of other um, places, mostly because when we were first starting out, you know, it's you're doing a lot of the education and research yourself, and we try through our process to make it as educational as possible. And whether we're doing an in-person or virtual consultation, just like I hope you've been experiencing now, we can't help ourselves but teach as much as possible because it's just so fascinating once you really get into the nitty gritty of your backyard, viewing it the same way you would a safari, you really can approach things very differently. Um, and so we do that for homeowners, uh, but we've also worked with some cities and towns and businesses to, again, try to make their spaces as pollinator friendly as possible. That's awesome, guys. I mean, for for a two person uh, band, you're you're knocking it out of the park. You're doing a ton of stuff, which I applaud you. And anytime I uh, come across people like yourselves who really are giving yourselves over to the education and trying to help restore native environments, it's uh, it's really interesting and I appreciate the work you're doing. So well, we, we really appreciate you saying that if yeah. it, it's something that for us, um, like we said, started as a small passion and has definitely, definitely taken over. And we're, we're so fulfilled by getting to educate people and work with people and um, are hoping to just keep working with as many different cities, towns, museums, individuals as we can. Well, folks, that was my conversation with Jill and Brennan of Sprigley's Beescaping. I had a fantastic time speaking with these two individuals, and I hope you learned a lot, as I know I did. If you're looking for even more information on Sprigley's or their educational video series, which we mentioned in the podcast, head on over to their website, sprigley's.com. And if you're looking to purchase their educational video series, Use the discount code HONEYBEE, that's all one word, HONEYBEE, to take $5 off 
your purchase and they will additionally donate $20 back to the Honeybee Society. So thank you all. I appreciate you listening and I look forward to bringing you another episode in the coming weeks. Thanks for making today a special day.